welcome to the Blinkist podcast. I'm Ben Schumann Stoller. If you're new to the podcast, the idea is we're going deeper into the nonfiction book world, getting into the heads of the inspiring and genius people who write those books. We take big ideas and we make them personal. Today, we got an interview I just finished up with Sandra Amit. Um, she is a neuroscientist, PhD. She uh, lives on the West Coast of the United States of America, author of the book, Why Diets Make Us Fat, and also, as I had to ask her about, uh, sailed from California to New Zealand, which I just think is crazy. I still can't totally get over it. But anyway, in the interview, we talk about the main points of the book, which is really why the body has a defended weight range that it won't let you diet your way out of, why willpower is completely useless when it comes to dieting, and why lifestyle changes are actually more important to your health than weight changes. So check it out. The voucher code for this episode, which will get you two weeks free of Blinkist, is why diets make us fat, all in one word, why diets make us fat. Also, really cool that some of you wrote in about the mindfulness episodes in March. Would be cool and nice to hear from more of you. Let us know what you thought of the format, like with Caitlin and I talking instead of just author interviews, or like one very astute listener uh, disagree with us. That's also cool. Just let us know. All right, let's roll the interview. I'll catch you guys in the outro. Thanks so much for coming on to the Blinkist podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about the book, Why Diets Make Us Fat, which you which came out last year, right? Mm-hmm. And I sort of separated the, the main three takeaways from the book into these three. One is the brain has a set point, which is like a range of 10 to 15 or so pounds that it wants the body to stay at. Two, dieting won't lower the set, the set point. In fact, it will probably raise it, and willpower isn't enough to lower it either. But three, mindful eating is the best way to accept the set point, possibly lower it, live happier, be healthy, and not the opposite, unhappy and unhealthy, which is what diets normally lead to. So like, how controversial were those points when the book came out uh, or the TED Talk? So the actual facts of the matter are not controversial at all. I've had nobody complain to me about the scientific information that the book is based on. But there's a lot of controversy about what's the best thing to do about it. So the idea that weight is actively managed by the brain, that's in physiology textbooks. Mm -hmm. The idea that these uh, the way that the brain fights back against diets lasts for years, also in physiology textbooks. But the conclusion that you should just make your peace with those facts instead of spending your whole life trying to struggle against them, that's where we get out of the range of facts and into opinions. And there are certainly people who disagree with me on that point. So what did you tell them? Well, I tell them if they want to spend their lives struggling against their weight set point, that's totally up to them. But I have been so much happier since I stopped that mm. I think it's something that people should at least consider as a possibility. So now we have to give some background, I think, because if people don't know what Yeah, the, we got in pretty deep. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I almost jumped right to, I have like quotes also from the mindfulness section that I really like, and I, we'll get to them later. So let's start on the basic, on, on some of your, the foundation of some of your arguments. I'll read a quick quote from the book. Just as the body needs a certain amount of sleep, the brain has a body weight range that it prefers and will defend for each individual. 
and another another part you talk about you call it the set point right mm -hmm. or the defended weight range which is what they call it now in the scientific literature because point sounds like a single weight and it right. it really is a range so how does the brain settle on that range we don't know in detail for sure, but there's clearly a strong genetic component to it. Most people's weights will settle somewhere near the weights of their family members. And there clearly are things that you can do over the course of your life or have done to you that will make the set point go up. Um, there is very little that we know of that can make it go down. Okay. And that's where, without even getting into diets, this already sort of can rub people the wrong way, right? Because we're constantly told that we can change it no matter, you know, if we just try hard enough, the brain can sort of overcome whatever the body has planned for us, even though that's like complete nonsense. Yeah, it's very deep, especially in American culture, that you are just in control of everything if you would simply try harder. But imagine for a moment that somebody said, oh, you're diabetic? You're not trying hard enough to control your blood sugar. What's wrong with you? When somebody says you should try harder to control your weight, they're talking about a process that is physiologically regulated as strictly as blood sugar. And, you know, like blood sugar, there are things, there are lifestyle choices that you can make that will slowly send things off in the wrong direction. But it's just not true that somebody can simply decide to take control of their physiology and change it by sheer force of will. So what does that mean when it comes to Let's say I have a dream of losing 30 pounds or something. What does that mean to my, to my dream? So if you simply go in with willpower and say, okay, I'm going to eat less, I'm going to exercise more, I'm going to lose those 30 pounds, and I'm going to keep it off forever, you have then taken on a lifetime project. You will be actively putting effort into that project every day for the rest of your life in order to succeed. It's not impossible, but it better be awfully important to you. <laughs> right, because there's a lot of other things I could do with my willpower, right? Exactly. And in your, your brain will continue to try to push you back to the weight that it prefers, as far as we can tell, forever. And it's it's been measured out as far as six years, and after six years, the, uh, the brain's response, which includes increased hunger and decreased metabolism and actually making food more rewarding to your brain, um, that continues. It's, it's actually stronger after six years than it was in the beginning. So was this what was sort of at play when there was that uh, quite depressing news cycle about all of the biggest loser contestants years later and how mm -hmm. many of them again was that sort of what was happening yeah that's the that's the best evidence there there have been other papers reporting the same thing but that is the best study by far because the the scientists actually went in and did individual physiological measurements on all of their 
biggest loser candidates before they lost the weight. Mm -hmm. And then again, after they lost the weight, and then again, six years later, when most of them had gained much or all of that weight back. And so they had, you know, within individual comparisons across time, after massive weight loss, and after they had regained on average 70% of their weight. And at that point, their metabolism was still quite suppressed. That's cool that you bring up metabolism, because this is something I, 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 I mean, I watched the TED Talk, I read the book, I've the metabolism thing is something I'm still not totally clear on. The study by, the work by uh, Libel, Dr. Libel, right? Mm-hmm. We have to eat much less than other people to make up for the metabolism after weight loss. Is that correct? Yeah. So if you have lost a lot of weight and kept it off, your body will actually burn less energy than the body of somebody who's the exact same size, but whose brain is happy with that weight. Oh, I see. Okay. And so does this connect to the thermostat analogy? Yeah. So that's, that's one of the two mechanisms that the brain uses to strongly push your weight back up where your brain thinks it should be into your defended range or your set point. Um, it turns out, actually, some research that's come out since I published the book uh, also by Kevin Hall, the scientist who did the Biggest Loser study. He, he did a clever study where he was able to actually measure the increase in appetite among people who had lost weight. And what he found out was that in calorie terms, the increased appetite was about three times bigger than the decreased metabolism. Uh, and his subjects had no idea they were eating more. That's the really interesting part. They, the, the increase in appetite, which led to an increase in eating, was totally unconscious. But so what does that mean? Is that, is that because the brain, um, like because of this thermostat, which the brain, you know, in the same way a thermostat gets back to the temperature you set it at, they didn't know that they were eating more because the brain was somehow setting the, the course back to the back to the target weight, back to the defended weight range? Yes. Yeah, so when you lose a lot of weight, your metabolism goes down, your appetite goes up. And as a consequence, most people naturally take in more calories and burn off fewer calories. And that's what leads them in the overwhelming majority of cases to gain back the weight that they've lost. Okay. And, and that, that's a thermostat, right? The, right? When the trigger is you should have a certain amount of body fat, oh, oops, you don't have enough, let's change the circumstances to encourage you to put on more. It's, it's a, uh, a controlled feedback loop mm-hmm. regulated process. And this is a process that willpower, as we started talking about at the beginning, willpower is pretty much helpless to, to fight against unless... Unless you're willing to like use all of your willpower resources on just this forever. Yes. Yeah, so weight loss is a particularly tough job for willpower. So let's let's contrast it, say, with exercise. If I decide I'm going to exercise every day and I'm going to use my willpower to do that, I have to use my willpower, if I'm good at it, exactly once, which is that moment when I put on my exercise clothes and walk out the door and go running or 
go walking or whatever it is that I'm planning to do. Okay, and then it's done, right? You mm-hmm. don't have to think about it again till the next day. In contrast, when you're talking about weight loss, when you're talking about trying to eat less, most people make 200 to 300 food-related decisions per day. Which is insane, by the way. Which is insane, yeah. So how many times, how many individual times when you're sitting in a meeting with a plate of donuts in the center of the table, do you have to make the decision to not reach for a donut? Right. And every one of those times uses willpower. And if you are successful 199 times and the 200th time you grab the donut, you're in exactly the same position as the person who grabbed the donut on the first try in terms of calories. So you say in the book, quote, when we try to use willpower to maintain a weight loss, we've chosen the wrong tool for the job. And this is because the system that sort of uses willpower has limited resources, but the system that sets up good habits, right? That habits is the answer, is what you say. Why is that? Yeah, just just what you said, that the system that controls willpower has only a limited amount of willpower to offer you over the course of the day. And it's not just for your eating decisions, but also for all kinds of other things that are probably important to you, like getting that work project finished or being a good parent to your kids. It's not clear for most of us that fitting into our skinny jeans is the single most important contribution we could make to the world using our willpower. I really hope that's not true for most of us. Well, but doesn't it take some willpower to start a new habit? This was something I was also not totally clear on. It does. Yeah, so that there's a key difference. It absolutely takes willpower to start a habit or to break a bad habit. Mm-hmm. But in contrast to the use of willpower for weight loss, once the habit is going, it doesn't take willpower to, to maintain it. Okay. But if you use your willpower directly on trying to lose weight, you have to do that forever. Right. As editor of Nature Neuroscience, you... I guess you read many, many neuroscience papers in the thousands, probably. And I was wondering where the book came from, actually, if the book came from, like, the research was just standing in front of you, and you were like, oh, my God, I have to tell people about this. Or if it came from this moment in your own life, and you're like, oh, my God, I have to tell people about this. But um, first, I have to find the research to support this. Yeah, so the research definitely came first, and I, I wish I had been smart enough to put it all together myself, because I had a lot of the pieces from my uh, my neuroscience training. But once I did figure it out, I, I really had this intense evangelical feeling of, why didn't someone tell me about this? I must tell other people. Yeah. And it's also interesting that, that the book seems to pivot and becomes about mindfulness. How did that happen? So where did mindful, what is mindful eating and where did that come from? in a book that starts off about why diets make us fat. So that was the part that grew out of my own experience that I I really didn't expect and didn't know about when I made the decision to stop dieting. I I was completely focused on weight as the outcome when I stopped dieting. You know, would I be able to maintain a stable weight? Would I not gain weight? And what I discovered to my considerable joy and surprise 
was that my whole relationship with food started to shift and, you know, I'm able to enjoy food in a way that I never did when I was dieting because, you know, even at moments when I was eating something really amazing back in those days, there was still always the part of my mind that was saying, you shouldn't do that and you're going to get fat. That's that's bad. That's sinful. Um, I mean, it really does sort of become like a moral issue for people. And what I what I found out as I went through it myself was that once I stopped thinking about eating as fundamentally about weight, I was gradually able to take a much more comfortable relationship with it and to trust that my body actually knew how much I should be eating and would adjust seamlessly for whatever splurges I occasionally made on really good food. And so the the mindfulness part, the idea that the best way to approach food is by relaxing and enjoying it and really paying attention to what your body wants from moment to moment and trusting that, you know, people have been maintaining stable weights for hundreds of thousands of years before anybody ever invented that little scale that you use to weigh chicken breasts. That was revelatory. Yeah. But then, of course, it's not just about mindfulness um, because it's also about lifestyle changes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what's an example of a lifestyle change? Okay. So, yeah, when I talk about a, a healthy lifestyle, I'm talking about getting regular moderate exercise, roughly a half hour a day. You know, if you if you want to be really at the top of your game an hour a day, uh, anything beyond that, you're not really gaining much uh, much health benefit from. Mm -hmm. And then an approach to food that maximizes whole foods, minimizes junk food. The biggest thing is to eat a lot of vegetables and not too many empty calories. Mm -hmm. And also like to stop smoking, right? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you smoke, the number one thing you can do for your health is quit smoking. But so okay, so these li- so these kinds of lifestyle changes really have a have a better health benefit than than weight changes. Yeah. So in studies where they've directly compared the two, what they tend to find is about a tenfold bigger effect of having a good lifestyle. So it's really first of all, losing weight is the hardest possible intervention compared to exercising every day or making sure that you eat a lot of vegetables. And it's also the least effective. So why are, why are we getting so focused on weight loss as the first line of defense against poor metabolic health, as opposed to doing these things that, as, as I said up top, you only have to use your willpower to do them once a day instead of having to constantly intervene to try to defeat this brain regulation. Hmm. Well, okay, cool. We're going to run out of time, but um, Googling you and stuff, I saw that you sailed to New Zealand from California. Is that for real? Yeah, that's for real. How did you, is like, 
you made it. You're alive, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was boring a lot more often than it was scary. My girl, we were talking about it at breakfast this morning. My girlfriend was like, "I don't, I couldn't take it. It would just be too boring. You wake up and see the ocean like every day." And I was saying, "You're not bored because you're." gonna die and you can't be bored you have to stay awake <laughs> and, and i just i really had i this i mean i we don't i don't come from a very boaty family or a sailing family i guess i don't have a lot of i guess if you couldn't ride a bicycle and then you heard of someone like biking you know 100 kilometers or something you might also think it's crazy but uh how long how long did that take so it was a total of 14 months and out of those 14 months we spent about five months actually on the water and the rest of the time in various harbors visiting french polynesia and tonga and uh, we spent five months in new zealand where we bought a car and drove around all over the place and i love that country and i i still don't feel like i got to see everything i wanted to see there that's so cool what did you sorry just last thing what did you do all the time on the on the boat then well there's a bunch of you know running the boat things that need to be done mm-hmm. and not dying that's a not, big one right and not dying isn't something that's you take an enormous amount fraction of your time taking care of but you know making sure you get fed and the boat's going in the right direction and stuff like that but then there there really are hours where you just are sitting out there looking at the water, hopefully being mindful. Cool. I just had to ask you that. Thanks for <laughs> indulging me. <laughs> um, well, this is great. I'm glad I'm glad we could do that um, or do this interview. And I hope I hope that people get the message because uh, when I sort of shared the document around the parts of the company today with sort of the plan of what I want to talk to you about, uh, it probably got more comments and more really interested um, responses than most of the other interviews we've done because people were just like, it seems to it seems to connect with a lot of people in a sort of intuitive and yet, I don't know, difficult way. And that's those seem to be the most important ideas. So it's great. Yeah, I find a lot of people sort of keep coming back to it again <laughs> and again and going going a little deeper each time because it is a hard idea to get your mind around it first. Yeah. Well, then, that's fantastic. Then hopefully we can talk at the next book. All right. Thanks. Hello. This is Ben and uh, Caitlin. Hi. We're in the courtyard. It's windy. It's getting windy. Odie's holding the microphone. We're in the covered blankets. in fur. It's covered in a wind sock. It's called a wind sock. And we have a new podcast segment that we're trying out. And Caitlin called it, what'd you call it again? I called it Five Minutes Smarter, but we might call it something else, so stay tuned for that. Okay, so if you have a good name for what this you're about to hear, <laughs> send it to podcast at Blinkist.com. Yes. And um, I mean, maybe you can introduce why we're doing this. So we're doing this because there are a lot of really interesting books out there, and they have the potential to really enrich whatever you are reading about and hearing about in the world right now. So we thought we would choose a book that was relevant to maybe what's in the news, or, I don't know, cultural things that are going on. Um, And this time we chose one that relates to news that you probably have read in the past couple of weeks or so. Right, and I would also say, like, I got to talk to a couple of Blinkist podcast listeners in the past weeks and months and one thing that they told me was um like they get a lot of really good book recommendations from the podcast so we thought cool let's let's make like a specific segment for a book recommendation um and so this time you picked a book 
they sense a relevant theme. Yes. That's me. That's my segue. <laughs> <laughs> Best segue ever. Thanks. Uh, I picked a book based on a relevant theme. It is called <laughs> Raw Deal. And if you participate in the economy at all, it applies to you, which means it applies to you. And it especially applies to you if you've recently used a rideshare app like Uber or Lyft um, or rented out an amazing apartment via Airbnb on your last vacation. Um, right. And so Stephen Hill, the author... Uh, he's a writer. He's got a couple best-selling books. He's work you can his work you can find in the Times, the Guardian, the Huffington Post. Um, we have this book on Blinkist, mm-hmm. so people can download it or listen to the summary on Blinkist. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of split up the points you want to talk about into four points. I did. That's they're, another segue. God, they're just not obvious <laughs> enough to me. Um, all right. So first off, after Ben's mediocre segue, um, the thing about the sharing economy that you might not really understand yet or have only heard rumblings of is that it's displacing people. Um, Most people think that it's an unalloyed positive thing and the hope was that the sharing economy would create a kinder, gentler form of capitalism. Um, But that's actually not what's happening. The sharing economy is also displacing people from their homes and from their livelihoods. Airbnb is effectively ousting people from their homes because professional renters are taking over. And talk to any taxi guy and you'll hear plenty of grousing about Uber and yeah. Lyft. This is, a, this is very relevant to Berlin because there's been a lot of Airbnb fights and it's actually illegal in some places in Berlin if you, if in some, under some conditions you're not allowed I to. I think it's it. illegal across the board, isn't it? I'm not sure. We have I'm to not check. sure. But, but it goes to show that, the, you know, this is a topic. Mm-hmm. And so, like, why, so why, why, what's so shady about these companies then? What's so shady? Well, there are a few things. Uber. Um, Uber is not just an unpleasant place for women to work. Uh, it gets around paying social security contributions by calling its drivers contractors instead of employees, um, which effectively denies them protections. And just as Facebook once tried to dodge the ac- accusations of um, yeah, sharing fake news, fake news stuff, yeah. yeah, Uber denies responsibility for whatever its drivers might do um, or any dangers their customers might find themselves in by just throwing their hands up and saying, don't look at me, I'm just a platform. Right. So... I don't know. I mean, it's, it is kind of a controversial thing. I know a lot of people who say Uber's made the world look a lot better, more efficient. Odie, who's holding the microphone right now, uses Uber quite regularly, and he's nodding, but he's not going to say anything. And, uh, <laughs> Looking really smug, too. I feel really guilty. <laughs> Hi, Odie. <laughs> is this the first time anybody's ever heard Odie's voice on a podcast? Who cut it out? <laughs> oh, you don't. But, but even though people use it, like they are doing some illegal stuff, or at least in the book, they say. They're, they're, they're doing actual legal stuff, right? Well, they're perpetuating illegal labor. So these businesses that are dominating the share, sharing economy are all in all pretty bad news for workers' rights. Workers are left without legal protections, as I mentioned before, and with very little recourse if they feel they've been wronged. Um, but people still continue to work for them, just illegally. And in fact, in 2012, underground economic activity in the U.S. was about $2 trillion, which is double what it was in 2009 and equal to 13% of the U.S.'s GDP. Right. And like for me, the takeaway is that it's actually that this stuff is growing still. And I think that that's, I don't know, whether it's good or bad, like it's it's still, it's something we should be paying attention to because it's this isn't done. It's not like it maxed out and it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So the right. question is like what, 
if it keeps going, what is it actually going to threaten? You know what I mean? Like, well, for one thing, it's going to threaten people in blue collar jobs much more than other things. Like we talk all the time about how automation and AI are coming to take our bagged lunches and scare us out of our jobs. But the thing that's way more threatening right now actually is the sharing economy. Um, history has shown us that without government regulations, there are no secure labor rights and salaries and benefits are guaranteed to plummet. And with freelancers already underemployed and underpaid, this would just do further harm. So, yeah, it's interesting, like, labor fight is not something that you hear a lot about anymore. But there's still, we do we do have books about this on Blue and if nothing else, like, I think, if, even if this wasn't the most uplifting first segment of books, yeah. hopefully people learned about a new thing and they right. can go check it out. Um, that was about five minutes, right? No, I think I think it might have been, and it's I, I just hope that it gives a little more context to um, companies that, that you hear about in the news, like like Uber. You hear, you know, only certain sides of the story and only certain aspects of what they do as businesses, and this is just a little bit more. Cool. So know? the book is called Raw Deal, and it's by Stephen Hill. Indeed, it is. And you can find it on Blinkist. Wow, that was very advertisey. That's fine. I think it's supposed to be a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Buy our thing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Blinkist Podcast. It was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie Constantino, who only drinks a specially roasted blend of coffee beans he makes in a popcorn maker in the cafe next to his house. True story. If you have any feedback or suggestions, let us know. Me, Caitlin, Odie, and the rest of the team here are available at podcast at Blinkist.com. We have some pretty cool new plans in the works for the rest of the spring and the summer. In the meantime, be good. This is Ben checking out.